dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Uh, a great day, a solemn day, a sad day in uh, the great nation across the sea that gave our nation birth. Uh, the queen is dead. Uh, God save the king. And they are immediately, he is immediately the king. He's King Charles III. There was some question about whether he would take the name Charles. I mean, the both King Charles I, who ended up being the only king who was beheaded, and King Charles II, uh, who was thought to be the merry monarch who had a, how do you say, a lot of uh, not so respectable antics behind his reign, that uh, uh, King Charles might have done what his grandfather did. His grandfather was known as Albert. That was his name. And when his father died, he took the name George the Sixth. And uh, uh, King Charles, uh, you have to catch yourself because he is now King Charles. He had the statement that uh, came out from uh, Buckingham Palace. It says, a statement from His Majesty the King. Yes, that's King Charles. At the time of the Queen's death. And he says in the statement, The death of my beloved mother, Her Majesty the Queen, is a moment of the greatest sadness for me and all members of my family. We mourn profoundly the passing of a cherished sovereign and a much-loved mother. I know her loss will be deeply felt throughout the country, the realms, and the commonwealth, and by countless people around the world. He then says, During this period of mourning and change, my family and I will be comforted and sustained by our knowledge of the respect and deep affection in which the king the queen was so widely held uh, dated today thursday the 8th of september uh, 2022 i um uh, my, my wife and i just found out about this as you are all just finding out about it it's one of those events that you will keep in mind and uh, my wife, Dr. Diane Medved, said something I thought that was very smart, is you know and always knew that she could not live forever. She was 96 years old. Uh, you know that she could not live forever, but you kind of thought she might. Uh, she reigned longer than any monarch in the history of Britain. Uh, more than King George III, who spent actually much of his reign in madness. He was the uh, last king of England that uh, represented, oh, people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. He was the king that we battled during the Revolution. He had served for 60 years, uh, though much of it incapacitated. Elizabeth has been rarely incapacitated even when she suffered from COVID-19 and uh, she she has served for 70 years on the throne it's all extraordinary this is a a flashback um, that I found very moving it's from 70 years ago when Winston Churchill 
uh, gave a radio address. He was then prime minister again. He had been voted out, then got voted back in. Uh, Churchill gave a radio address after the death of King George VI in 1952. And uh, uh, listen, this is right at the moment that young Princess Elizabeth became Queen Elizabeth. A flashback from 1952, clip one. In the end, death came as a friend. And after a happy day of sunshine and sport, and after a good night to those who loved him best, he fell asleep as every man or woman who strives to fear God and nothing else in the world may hope to do. I, whose youth was passed in the august, unchallenged and tranquil glories of the Victorian era may well feel a thrill in invoking once more the prayer and the anthem. God save the Queen. And uh, what he is referring about, uh, of course, the first Queen of England since uh, the great Queen Victoria, who also was uh, cherished and admired uh, and uh, remarkably popular around the world. She also happened to be the grandmother of the Tsar of Russia, yes, uh, the grandmother of the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm II, yes, and, uh, and the grandmother of the then, uh, during World War I, uh, King of England, all cousins, amazing. Uh, it's part of the history and the connection with history. They, there's a great deal of conversation now, and there are photographs to prove it, that, that shortly after the Queen's passing, uh, just as the news was being announced, a double rainbow appeared uh, momentarily over Buckingham Palace. Uh, now, you can't arrange stuff like that. It's uh, It's unusual. Uh, it's uh, it's remarkable, and the whole existence of the monarchy, which, by the way, Liz Truss, the new prime minister, who had just, I believe it was yesterday, the day before, uh, Liz Truss had met with Her Majesty the Queen. There was a photograph, it was the last photograph they've released of her in her life, her long life, her 96 years of living, and uh, and Her Majesty the, the Queen was smiling. She was holding a walking stick, and she was asking Liz Truss, the choice of the Conservative Party, to form a new government. It was the 15th Prime Minister, 15th, that with whom she had interacted in that way. The, uh, this is the commentary by now the new Prime Minister uh, talking about the new king. Uh, listen to Prime Minister Liz Truss. Clip 11. Queen Elizabeth II leaves a great legacy. Today the crown passes, as it has done for more than a thousand years, to our new monarch, our new head of state, His Majesty, King Charles III. With the King's family, we mourn the loss of his mother, and as we mourn, 
we must come together as a people to support him, to help him bear the awesome responsibility that he now carries for us all. We offer him our loyalty and devotion, just as his mother devoted so much to so many for so long. And with the passing of the second Elizabethan age, we usher in a new era in the magnificent history of our great country, exactly as Her Majesty would have wished, by saying the words, God save the King. And God save the King indeed. Uh, there is more. Uh, we, we have a great deal to talk about on the Medved Show today. We're going to be speaking about a very different kind of head of state than Queen Elizabeth, uh, Vladimir Putin. How could someone who's reputed for his genius, his brains, his acuity, make the kind of mistake he made? by the invasion of Ukraine and and the entire world can see it's a mistake and it's a disaster and it's a cruelty we'll be speaking to uh, Alex Berezow who has written a deeply informed I think a very very important piece about understanding Putin's gamble and we'll be speaking to Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal about the argument that uh, fewer people need to go to college in the United States. And what happens next in what is called Operation London Bridge? That's the bridge between one monarch and another. That and more coming up on The Medved Show. as is the rest of the world to the death of the monarch, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, described in uh, announcement of her death in the New York Times as Britain's beacon of stability. It's, uh, it's fascinating how this thing worked, is this morning there was an announcement that she had been placed under medical supervision, and uh, that's this morning... Uh, Pacific Coast time, and 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 then the announcement uh, uh, later in the afternoon in in Britain that she she had passed. The um, uh, Mark Landler writes that the death of Queen Elizabeth II, which Buckingham Palace announced on Thursday, is a watershed moment for Britain at once incomparable and incalculable. It marks both the loss of a revered monarch, the only one most Britons have ever known, and the end of a figure who served as a living link to the glories of World War II Britain, who presided over its fitful adjustment to a post-colonial, post-imperial era, and saw it through its bitter divorce from the European Union. There is no analogous public figure who will have been mourned as deeply in Britain uh, Winston Churchill might come closest, or whose death could provoke a greater reckoning with the identity and the future of the country. Elizabeth's extraordinary longevity uh, lent her an air of permanence that makes her death, even at an advanced age, yes, she was 96, somehow shocking. Britain and 15 other Commonwealth realms over which she presided 
are a shadow of the empire in decline that she inherited in 1952. How many of these countries will continue to recognize the British monarch as their official head of state is an open question. And I, again, that's one of the questions. The other question was whether he would be known as Charles III. Apparently, that has now been confirmed. The um, BBC spoke of the Queen's death. Uh, Nicholas Witchell on the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, still the most uh, influential and prestigious and widely respected um, news source in the world, and it is. I mean, the, the BBC is... Uh, I, look, I, I don't think that there are... Uh, that any of the American news companies are are played everywhere across planet Earth, but the BBC is. And here is Nicholas Witchell on the death of Her Majesty the Queen. This is an absolutely massive moment, the moment that so many people have dreaded for so long has come. It's a moment of great solemnity and national sadness. It's hard, really, fully to take it in. It's no great surprise, given her age and her declining health. But nonetheless, it is a very considerable shock to feel that she has died. Millions of people, I think, as they learn this news, will feel a sense of personal loss. And I think many people will find it rather disorientating. Uh, yeah. Uh, there are people who do find it uh, disorientating, and that's the way they say it. They don't say disorienting. In Britain, they say disorientating. Um, the... Uh, uh, out, outside 10 Downing Street, the new Prime Minister, who had met just two days ago with uh, Her Majesty the Queen, uh, announced this and addressed her passing. Uh, this is clip 10. The death of Her Majesty the Queen is a huge shock to the nation and to the world. Queen Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. Our country has grown and flourished under her reign. Britain is the great country it is today because of her. She ascended the throne just after the Second World War. She championed the development of the Commonwealth from a small group of seven countries to a family of 56 nations spanning every continent of the world. We are now a modern, thriving, dynamic nation. Through thick and thin, Queen Elizabeth II provided us with the stability and the strength that we needed. She was the very spirit of Great Britain, and that spirit will endure. Uh, and uh, how it will endure under her son, uh, King Charles III, lots of questions about that. They uh, say in the New York Times, the royal family's future under a new King Charles is uncertain. He is remarried. His second wife is Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, and his accession to the throne is no longer in doubt as it was during his personal struggles. What they're talking about is the fact that he had the world's, or one of the world's messiest divorces, uh, which, uh, again, that 
process of um, marital breakup was was really what kept uh, the 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 new uh, king's great uncle, uh, King Edward, from uh, continuing on the throne while he was king and he was still unmarried. He had conducted an affair with an American woman who had already been divorced once. She got divorced a second time because of her affair with the king. And it was considered unseemly to have uh, someone presiding over uh, Great Britain and presiding over the Church of England because in the British Constitution, as it's called, they don't have a written constitution. But the one of the things that happens now is the head of the national church that owns all those magnificent cathedrals and still is the most uh, popular, most influential religious faith in Great Britain. The uh, Church of England has a new leader, and it is uh, Charles III, His Majesty the New King. Amid the public mourning... Uh, comes a transition of power and national memorializing known as Operation London Bridge, the bridge of one monarch to another. Much has been planned down to the minute, and some things have already fallen into place. By the time the world knew about the Queen's death, her son Charles had already officially become king. Under British common law, the moment of the sovereign's death marks the moment the heir becomes the monarch. It's not like, as in the United States, if a, a president dies, there is a swearing-in of the new president, an inauguration of the new president, though not a festive one. You may remember that historic photo when President Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, it was actually, I think, more than an hour after he was actually shot on the airplane, Air Force One. Going back to Washington, D.C., he was standing beside Mrs. Kennedy with the blood still spattered on her pink suit, and he raised his hand to take the oath of office. According to the Queen's death, uh, the blueprint, the Queen's death would be communicated with one coded phrase, London Bridge is down. Coming up, talking about Vladimir Putin in context. Pleasure to welcome back to uh, our show um, a prominent science writer, but not just on science. He is uh, now the editor of Big Think, uh, the executive editor, and uh, which is uh, gaining increasing prominence and attention on the internet. Alex Berizzo is a doctor in microbiology, and. He has a powerful piece that's extraordinarily important and really directly relevant to part of America's political crisis right now. Question is, how did Russia's strange cultural mindset lead to Vladimir Putin's great miscalculation? The great miscalculation, of course, was that the belief that the war in Ukraine would be easy, they would easily decapitate, and they use that term the regime in Kyiv. Uh, how did Putin get it so wrong? What's the crucial aspect of Russian history and Russian character, Alex, that uh, made it almost inevitable that Putin would make that kind of mistake? Uh, great question, Michael, and thanks for having me on again. Um, you know, 
Russia suffers from a culture of very deep cynicism and distrust, particularly of the outside world. And this is something that goes back all the way. I mean, we're talking 1700s, 1800s, probably even before that. Russians perceive themselves as a persecuted people that uh, other countries are trying to invade and take them over and suppress them and undermine them. And, you know, they'll point to, fairly enough, uh, the invasion of uh, the French, you know, the Napole Napoleon invaded them, the Nazis invaded them. But they seem to have this idea that they are under perpetual threat of being invaded and taken over and undermined. And as a response, they want to expand. That's one of the driving reasons of their of their foreign policy is to expand to protect their borders. And this cynicism and distrust and really paranoia of the outside world drives a lot of their foreign policy. I think that what struck me also about your piece, and we've posted up at our website at michaelmedved.com, is that you also talk about uh, the Russian regime, whether it was czarist or whether it was communist, has always had a reputation for cruelty, incompetence, and corruption. I mean, it's like nowhere else. You can you can read the history of Ivan Grozny, of Ivan the Terrible, uh, going back more than 300 years. And the the level of of corruption and sadism and excess, this is not a, a place that has ever been well governed. And uh, okay, you could say that's part of character. That's also part of the mere size of Russia, where it's 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 genuinely difficult to govern uh, an empire of that size and really of that diversity. But this apparently is very true. I know it's it's notorious about the million and a half Russian nationals who, who've run out of Russia and live in Israel. And uh, they're very suspicious of, of anything involving the government because the assumption is the government's corrupt and the government's there to hurt you. And what is concerning me is with much less basis uh, there are increasing numbers of Americans, aren't there, who are taking that same attitude, who who just don't trust anything about the government, which is part of the sickness that has always plagued Russia. You know, I, I hadn't even made that connection, uh, and I'm glad that you did, um, because I think that you are correct. And one of the, the moral lessons here that we should take away from Russia is that culture matters. And it's not simply passing laws that matters, it's the mindset of the people. And when your people are full of paranoia and distrust of each other and of their government, you can't have a functioning society. It doesn't matter what laws you pass. Democracy and, and our federal governance is highly dependent on the fact that we trust our neighbors and we trust institutions. And when that goes, your country goes with it. Well, again, uh, so to explain, because your, your piece does an excellent job of this, is that uh, you talk about the, the catastrophic decision to invade Ukraine was based on four major miscalculations, all of which are united by a single fatal flaw in Putin's thinking that the whole world is every bit as corrupt as he is. 
How did that assumption of the whole world being corrupt and nothing being trustworthy, how would that feed a, a decision to send over 100,000 troops, uh, many of whom have died in, in combat, into this disastrous war? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it manifested in a few different ways, which I explain in those miscalculations. Uh, Putin sees the world as as cynical, just like he is, that everybody's out for their own self-interest, uh, selfish, self-destructive self-interest, really. And uh, he expected, for instance, that the Ukrainians simply would not fight, that they value their own lives or their, their, you know, their own house or wealth or whatever, and would not stand up to fight for their national identity. And he was wrong. They stayed and they fought. He thought that the president, Volodymyr Zelensky, would flee the country, just like the previous president had. He did not. He stayed and he rallied the country. Uh, likewise, Putin believed that the West would not really respond to him, which was a, a fair assumption because we hardly responded the first time he invaded Ukraine and seized Crimea. And so he assumed that would happen again, that Western countries like cheap natural gas and that we will keep taking that cheap natural gas and allow him to do whatever he wants to do uh, to whoever he wants to do. And he also believed that the West uh, was too divided. Uh, to make a strong, unified response. And this is all based on his view that people are completely self-interested, that altruism, that concern for your neighbor, that standing up for democracy, these are not real things. These are not real principles. That's what he believes. And he was catastrophically wrong. The West united and are standing up to him. Yeah, I mean, do you think that, that it's too much to say that Putin uh, was watching what happened in Washington, D.C. on January 6th and then the aftermath of January 6th and uh, was licking his chops? Uh, this uh, actually showed a, a nation where people couldn't even agree on the outcome of an election. Uh, that uh, doesn't project any sort of national strength, does it? It absolutely does not, and I think that certainly plays a role. I don't think that was a decisive factor, but I think that he does look at the United States as a declining power. Um, China, for certain, looks at us as a declining power, and if you, you know, watch what's going on in Washington, D.C., uh, it's hard to conclude otherwise uh, at the moment. And uh, let, us, uh, let us hope that that, that changes. Uh, do you share the view that is increasingly expressed, it was professed by Professor Charles Lipson yesterday on this show, that there is a real chance of some manner, sort of Ukrainian victory in this war? That is a, a really tough question because uh, what I foresee happening now is an entrenched battle that will just go for years and years and years. Uh, it doesn't look like the Ukrainians are going to give up. It doesn't look like Putin is going to give up. And so I think that as long as we keep supplying Ukraine with weapons, which I pray we do, um, I think they're going to keep fighting, and I think it's going to be essentially a stalemate. I don't know what a victory looks like for either side at this point. Um, you know, I, I, if I was Volodymyr Zelensky, I would consider a victory if, if Russia stops fighting. But I know, and I listened to your show yesterday, um, 
I think your guess considers a victory would be for, for Ukraine to recapture all of that land. I don't see how that's possible for Crimea. Very well, the, pro-Russian. Uh, Crimea really is pro-Russian. Yes, I mean, they, they had a, um, a plebiscite there where it's overwhelmingly pro-Russian. Uh, Alex Berezow, how Russia's strange cultural mindset led to Vladimir Putin's great miscalculation. Worth reading. We will be right back. Show uh, the uh, death of Queen Elizabeth, uh, obviously touching the entire world. It's one of those those moments that uh, everyone expected, but not now. It wasn't supposed to happen now. Well, it it, it has, and uh, part of um, what uh, is involved with uh, what they call on the other side of the pond operation london bridge the bridge between two monarchies is um the status of uh the the queen consort as she is now named and that no is not uh it, it is not her majesty queen elizabeth may she rest in peace it is uh, Camilla Bowles, who um, Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall. She uh, uh, there were questions because of the nature of her pre. Well, it's actually an, her extramarital relationship with uh, now King Charles. Because of that, it was unclear whether she would be welcomed, uh, crowned, and uh, revered as the queen consort well she will that was clear with a statement that was issued by buckingham palace which was issued in the name of the king and the queen consort and uh, charles it uh, says in the bbc has long expressed a desire to streamline the family to make it less of a drain on the public purse and the internal strife continues as the royals adapt to the departure of Harry and Meghan, who have made a new life in California. Uh, the popularity of Harry and Meghan, whatever it is, such as it is, it just it, it seems extraordinary to me because they do not seem to be people who take the responsibility of being part of the firm, the royal family, that uh, so much characterized uh, Harry's grandmother, Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, Forbes writes that the organizational chart of the firm is a testament to the 1,000-year-old family business, and the public perception that sustains it is vital to its success. It is a very formalized influencer business, explains David High, who is chief executive of Brand Finance. Unlike a celebrity family such as the Kardashians, however, the Windsors don't personally profit from the business itself although they contributed an estimated uh, $2.7 billion an annually to the U.K. economy pre-pandemic. The impact the royal family has, Forbes writes, on the U.K. economy is mostly through tourism, but High notes that there are other financial benefits, such as free media coverage of Britain, which was an estimated $400 million in 2017. And 
the the other aspect of the royal family and one of the reasons that people like Alexander Hamilton thought that uh, we needed our own royal family here as a, 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 a an alternative to the royal family back in Britain the the one aspect about the royal family that has worked extraordinarily well during Elizabeth's reign is even at, at moments of very, very bitter confrontation and disagreement, uh, everyone accepted the queen. And not necessarily as someone to give commands and to make the final faithful decisions for the country or to be someone with extraordinary political power but to have the symbolic power that uh, even people who might be passionately pro-labor and waving their red banners and singing the Internationale as the Labor Party did, uh, that even with that, there could still be at least some voices in every political faction who recognize the dignity and the unifying impact of Her Majesty the Queen. We've, with our most successful presidents, have also enjoyed that that moment. It's one of those. It's one of the reasons that I actually thought that the unveiling of the portraits of the Obamas, not that they are the equivalent of the Queen of England, but we do have that aspect. Here in the United States, we're one of the very few nations in the world where the head of state is the same as the head of government. Uh, there are other places, including Israel, for instance, where they have a president of Israel whose name is Herzog now, and almost no one knows who he is, and the prime minister. And the president is supposed to be beyond politics. Shimon Peres was a very successful president of Israel, unsuccessful as prime minister. In any event, the, the idea that uh, there is something about the government itself the symbolic head of the government, the head of state, uh, that transcends any partisanship, that, that it seems to me is useful. And what's peculiar now is that you have actually two parties, uh, both of which uh, have characterized a major president, President Biden, and then before that, President Trump, were characterized as illegitimate by some of their political opponents. Like, they had no right to be uh, the head of state and head of government. Uh, for instance, Sonny Hostin, who uh, had once said that uh, Trump was uh, not an illegitimate president, uh, she's very confused about all of this on The View. Uh, here's what she had to say today. Listen, it's clip two. I don't like what aboutism. I never have. You know, well, you know, you did this, so I'm going to do this. Or remember when you did that. But I will say that there, when Trump became president, I think people were so very shocked, even considering the Electoral College and, and that sort of thing. The assumption was, at least mine, I'll speak for myself, that Russia must have been involved because we knew from the Mueller report that Russia had some involvement. Russia thought that, they, that it could benefit from a Trump presidency, which it did, by the way. Um, but I remember calling him an illegitimate president, and that was wrong. 
I should not Why? have said that because he was not a, an illegitimate but president. But that was how you felt. You had every well, right and to that say it. Felt. However, yeah. he remains a twice impeached, disgraced, yeah. one-term yeah. president. By the way, All of that is just, true. Okay. Okay, but you see, her colleagues won't even allow her retroactively to admit that President Trump was a legitimate president. He had been, according to federal law, and no one seriously challenged it. They challenged it rhetorically. But was there any evidence that was brought forward to say that, well, actually Hillary had won the election, that she had won those five states that uh, were all pretty close, but that she had won those states that would have been necessary to make her president. And then there is uh, Hillary herself saying back on CBS in 2019, this is after Trump had been president for more than two years. Hillary Clinton herself said this, uh, clip 12. I believe he knows he's an illegitimate president. He knows. He knows that there were a bunch of different reasons why the election turned out the way it did. And I take responsibility for those parts of it that I should. But, Jane, it was like applying for a job and getting 66 million letters of uh, recommendation and losing to... A corrupt human tornado and so I know that he knows that this wasn't on the level I don't know that we'll ever know everything that happened but clearly we know a lot and are learning more every day and history will probably sort it all out okay I, again when you hear that it's it's truly shocking because one of the things that and I I have said the same thing myself look it, it, it's different that Hillary Clinton can say something like that two years after he's elected president. And people may be saying the same thing about Biden. But the uh, what she didn't do, fortunately for the country, was to actually launch uh, legal challenges and a challenge at the time of his inauguration. That was two years after he was president. It's still appalling. And uh, similarly appalling is... Uh, well, this yesterday when she was on The View and said that Biden did a very important service to the country in calling his Republican opponents fascists. Really? That's a service to the country? How and in what way? Uh, there's also new announcements about the new COVID vaccine and the impact of vaccinations generally that continues to be controversial and huge controversy about the student loan forgiveness program forget about that jason riley says in the wall street journal what we really need to look at is the terrible mistake of college for everybody it's not for everybody and shouldn't be pushed for everybody or everyone pushed into it. We'll get to that and to more concerning this greatest nation on God's green earth.